Welcome, Luminous Writers, to the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast. I am your host, author, and literary magazine editor, Rachel Thompson. This podcast explores how to write and share your brilliant writing with the world. In each episode, we delve into specifics on how to polish and prepare your writing for publication and the journey from emerging writer to published author. Welcome, Luminous Writers. This is part two of conversations with four writers from my Lip Mag Love course community. In the last episode and in this episode, we hear from Ellen Chang Richardson, a poet, writer, and editor of Taiwanese and Cambodian Chinese, or Chinese-Cambodian, as she puts it, Descent, whose writing has appeared in The Fiddlehead, Vallum Contemporary, and Watch Your Head, among others. Hege A. Jacobson Lepre, a Norwegian-Canadian translator and writer who had her first story published in English in 2013 and has since chosen that as her writing language. Laurie Sebastianuti, a writer and teacher and former managing editor of the Fertility Matters Canada blog. She has published in The New Quarterly, The Hamilton Review of Books and Nurture. And Angela Wright, a writer, historian, and political analyst based in Toronto, Canada. Her creative nonfiction has appeared in The Fiddlehead, The New Quarterly, and The Brooklyn Quarterly. They are back this time to talk about rejection and resilience when it comes to writing and publishing in lit mags. You probably already know this or have heard that rejection is a big part of writing to be read and submitting your work to lit mags. You probably also wish you could snap your fingers and become immune to rejection, but sorry, it is unavoidable. And it just feels bad we're wired for that. And unfortunately, were we to totally avoid feeling bad about rejection, it would make us pretty bad writers. To be blasé about being turned down would likely require turning off all our feelings, and feeling is an occupational requirement for us writers. But before we leap right into those bad feelings about rejection, I asked the writers with us to go through some of the things they learned they can do to minimize the chance of rejection for their work. This is not a bulletproof list, again, sorry, but here are some mistakes you can learn from. You'll recall last episode, Hege A. Jacobson Lepre told us about how she writes in every genre there is, from quite traditional to very experimental. So she has tailored lists of places where she sends her work. But she wasn't always so clear in her submissions. Early on when she was submitting to journals, she made the mistake of forgetting to include a cover letter. I've done every single thing that you can do wrong, like send the wrong attachment, realizing afterwards that, oops, that was 50 words over, and that would have been easy to edit out. But, you know, these things happen. You just have to be kind to yourself and say, I'll try to do better next time. There's no point in beating yourself up over something forever. You know, the first time, I didn't know. I, I was so completely green here that I had no idea. I don't think I even sent a cover letter. I don't know what I wrote in that because it was unsustainable. So I didn't know how to do these things. I had no idea what I was doing. I did on that first submission to, to room, I did receive a personalized rejection, which I think made it much easier for me to keep going. Having that first encounter be sort of positive really helped me, but I'm pretty sure I didn't have an actual cover letter. I did have two pieces published at that point. That wasn't completely empty. So I think the whole letter may have been just a bio, like a very short bio. 
Now, forgetting to send out a cover letter isn't always a big deal. I find in general writers agonize over the cover letter much more than they need to, actually. Some journals want them, others don't mind either way. But Hege does touch on a mistake she made within those cover letters that I think is really important to note, and what she picked up after taking the LitMag Love course in 2017. After 2017, when I sort of learned how to do these things, I did start writing real cover letters. And I can see those first ones, how I sort of tried to exaggerate my experience, which wasn't much. And now I'm sort of paring it down and tailoring it to where I'm sending it. So even stuff like my bio will change slightly depending on what corner of the market I'm aiming at, because there are some names that will be a little more enticing and, you know, make them want to look at my piece compared to others. So if it's something really experimental, then I will name certain places I've been published. And if it's more mainstream, I'll name certain others. I'm not just tailoring where I send stuff, but also the parts of myself that I mention in my cover letter. That makes me so giddy to hear that she learned from those early submission fumbles and she now tailors what she says in her cover letters, just like she tailors where she sends her writing. Lori Sebastianudia also found that when she didn't reflect as much on her submissions, when she wasn't as careful and methodical, that got her into trouble early on. In our previous episode, Lori talked about how her writing process evolved away from starting with looking at journals and what they want to instead starting with looking inside herself for the story she wants to tell and then finding the fit with the journals who will publish those stories. But it took a while for her to learn how to look for that fit. So I wrote a prose poem that I was really proud of and really happy with. And I thought, don't ask me why I thought this, but I thought, oh, I'm going to submit this to Brevity. And Brevity, I did inquire, they do publish the occasional prose poem, but Brevity is known for like fast paced because it's short form, right? It's 750 words. So fast paced flash nonfiction. So real stories, but told almost like fiction in a way with like a narrative arc and all that stuff. And here I am submitting this like dreamy circular prose poem, which is what a prose poem I've told is supposed to be. Needless to say, it was a rejection. (laughs) But I think once again, this was back in 2017, I was just starting and I was not really thinking through, you know, looking back, really, should I have submitted that prose poem to brevity? Probably not. But hey, it was a learning experience. So I think once again, when editors say read the journal, know the journal, I mean, they're not just saying that to hear themselves speak. It's really true. So yeah, I learned from that for sure. Read the journal. Yes, that is vital advice for writers. And I hope it helps encourage you to do the same. If you've been submitting a while and starting to get those rejection letters, Ellen Chang Richardson has another note all writers should listen to from editors. I want to talk about like resubmissions. Like sometimes you'll get a form rejection, which is fine. And if you really like the magazine or the literary publication, then definitely resubmit your work to them. But then sometimes you're just like, okay, form, maybe I wait a few issues or whatever and see if my work really fits them or not. But then sometimes you get a really personalized rejection where it's something like, you know, this doesn't fit 
the other pieces we've selected for this specific theme, but please send us your work again in the future. And I was actually having a conversation with my Poetry Collective 7, and Margot Lapierre shared a really interesting article that was talking about how a lot of writers, primarily who identify as female, wait before they send their work back out again. They wait either, you know, six months to 12 months. And the article was saying, instead of doing that, just resend new work immediately, like at the next submission cycle. Don't wait two or three submission cycles to do it. Especially if it's like a personalized, send us more of your work. Then they're like, oh, you actually took what we said to heart. And they're also remembering you because it's within a a specific amount of time instead of like three to five years down the line. So I think especially with like form rejections from a literary magazine that you genuinely admire or like especially with personalized rejections, submit that work again. That is a hard agree with me for what Ellen had to say about submitting the work again. And you may recall Angela Wright told us in the previous episode how she really closely pays attention to LitMag editors and often picks fit for LitMags based upon those editors' tastes and experiences. She also shares this insight about what does rejection or acceptance even mean? I mean, the other thing in terms of who gets accepted, you don't know the nature of that person's relationship with the editor or they, you know, they could know each other personally. That person could know if they did an MFA, they could have all these other connections and networks. So there's just so many different moving pieces that go along with why a piece might be accepted or rejected. That's always really important to remind ourselves that we're professional writers and that I know we don't always like to think of it this way, but writing is also a business in a sense. And so there are always going to be business decisions that are made that we may not understand or agree with. You also don't know who's fighting for you. I mean, it could be that your piece is rejected, but there was someone in the room who was like, I love this. It needs to be in there. And, you know, either there was another piece that was like just slightly better or that more people liked, or there could be that there was a piece that was recently published that was very similar to yours. And it's really hard to know exactly what the conversation is. And so you should never assume necessarily that a rejection means that people did not like it. Laurie Sebastian Udi, again, describes an experience of being on that other side, reading submissions, and affirms what Angela has to say, and also my own experience as a LitMag editor as well. I recently was a reader, not a judge, but I was a reader for the birth story contest out of the doula support foundation in Kingston. And so I was the first reader and yeah, like I so appreciated reading all the stories and it was so hard. The organizer said, I need your top five. And I think she gave me 15 to read. So those other 10, like I felt heartbroken, but I get it. Right. And no, I did not laugh at anybody. Like I thought that their stories were awesome. And and I learned so much from stories, even ones that I didn't choose. So I get it now. Lori didn't always have that insight. Listen to how, when she first started submitting her work, she felt about getting rejected. And that's something that happens to all of us, as we know. And she had a very different notion about what a lit mag editor was thinking. And then her evolution to change that notion. Well, my relationship to rejection has evolved, I guess, like every writer, like at first, of course, it hurts. 
you take it personally, but I think I was embarrassed. Like when I get a rejection, I'd be like, Oh my God, what did this editor think that they'd like laugh their head off thinking, who is she thinking she could get into this journal? I really felt that sort of sense of embarrassment, but I've learned that, you know, that's most likely not the case. They're probably not laughing at me. They're probably admiring me for trying and putting my work out there and, and, you know, just talking with other writers about rejection so helps. And just that there's so many people who want a spot and there's not a lot of spots and you have to understand that tough decisions are made and it's easy to hear that, but I think I really let that sink in, you know, like I got a rejection not too long ago from this journal in the U S image. I have a subscription and I read and, you know, and it hurt. I didn't feel embarrassed. I think I'm over that, but it hurt a little bit, but then I moved on and I'm like, well, I got other essays I want to write. I'll let that one sit for a bit. Maybe I'll come back to it. Maybe I'll change it. I'll try another journal. So yeah, I mean, I think it always going to hurt a tiny bit, but I really don't dwell on them anymore. I used to dwell on them and I've lost that sense of embarrassment. And I, I realized that, you know, it's probably more admiration that editors are an appreciation that you actually have an interest in their journal. So yeah, it's definitely evolved. But what's helped is talking to other writers, my writing group, the groups that we have in Writerly Love or in Facebook groups hearing about people saying like, oh, you know, this was rejected five times and then it got published or even just people saying, you know what, it's rejected and I'm going to wait and see what to do with it or I'm going to send it out again right away. All of that is very helpful. Ellen Chang Richardson also found it hard to get those rejections at first, who wouldn't, but then learned to appreciate getting any response at all. Let's say we send out 10 submissions. And they go out there into the world. I mean, chances are that I'm going to get eight rejections, maybe even nine, maybe even 10. When you get rejections, you kind of get this feeling of like, oh, am I alone? Does my work suck? But then if you talk to other writers and other people of your community, you realize that it's just part of the damn thing. So when I first started submitting, I would be devastated. <laughs> but actually, one of the lessons, I don't know if it was part of writerly love or if it was part of lit mag love, it was more of a self-care perspective when it comes to rejections. And so I actually appreciated that because that course was like, you know, take the rejection, but don't dwell on it, right? Like celebrate the fact that you've gotten a response. Because sometimes places don't respond. There's like two poems of mine that I submitted way back when, 2019, still haven't gotten a response from the magazine. And now the magazine, I'm pretty sure it's defunct. But I'm like, I don't think I'm ever going to get anything published in there. I'm also not going to name the magazine because that's just rude. I'm like, okay, well, I don't know, like a no would have been nice or like a not right now. Unfortunately, getting no feedback is not super uncommon. I actually am a volunteer collective member of a magazine that never responded to all of my submissions in the early aughts. Lip mags are stretched thin and run by people often doing this work off the sides of their desks and lives. I love how Ellen, though, learned to appreciate just hearing anything back because of this. And I hope you're hearing what I'm hearing from all these writers, which is being in community with other writers, connecting with other writers really helps them weather the rejection storm. You feel alone in your rejection cloud until you talk to other writers. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's just part of it. You had to kind of like take that, throw it away, move on. And here's Angela Wright again on this. 
I would say that community is probably one of the most important things as a writer. I think for me, had I not had a community of writers around me to support me, I would not have been successful because there were people who were pushing me. You know, at one point I had an accountability buddy, which is all about, even if we were not writing together, it was like, what is your goal for this week? Okay. Did you, were you successful? Were you not successful? Scheduling meetups with other writers. I also have someone who I sit down with and will write grant applications for. We'll write different grants. Sometimes it'll be for the same grant. Sometimes it'll be for different ones. But to have people there, just mostly for emotional support, because writing can be very exhausting. So I would say the most important thing is community, whether it's a big group. I had writing groups that were really helpful, especially at the beginning. It was really helpful to get feedback on my writing before I was published. And then also just having people who will read your work so you can do, you know, writing swaps with different people. But yeah, and then ultimately at the end of the day, like people who you can kind of vent with when something is not accepted. Um, and yeah, who will listen to you in your angry, in your angry rants. <laughs> yeah, so I would say community is kind of the most important thing. I would say the most important aspect of getting through writing and just building a writing career because ultimately we need each other as writers and we need other writers as well. And it's super important to have, if not a major community of writers that's something like created through an MFA program, have other writers around you just because people who are not writers do not understand. They just don't. You know, they'll be like, oh, you haven't published anything lately. And it's like, no, it takes time. It's not just going to show up in a few weeks, you know, you tell your parents, oh yeah, I'm going to have a piece published in this thing. Well, when's it coming out? Probably in six months. So it's really important just to, to have other people who understand the process because people who are not writers do not understand the process at all. And they will ask very ridiculous questions and not really understand when you explain things to them. I'm interrupting these four luminous writers, all of whom are alumni of my course called Lit Mag Love, to let you know that if you've benefited from what you've learned in this or other episodes of this podcast about writing and submitting your work to journals, you might be a good candidate for my course that is all about publishing in journals. The Lit Mag Love course will help you get a big yes for your writing from a literary journal. The five-week course runs twice per year, Our first session in 2022 starts February 1st, so you have time to plan your course sessions for the new year. Lit Mag Love comes with lots of support and feedback. You can learn all about the Lit Mag Love course, find out what writers say about working with me, and join the course waitlist to get exclusive enrollment offers at rachelthompson.co slash litmaglove. Now back to the conversation with four luminous writers who are all alumni of the Lit Mag Love course as they discuss handling rejection and writing community. We need other writers. This is something all four writers in this episode agree upon. Here's Hege again. Community really helps. As I already explained in this, my my daily haiku practice and having a group around me there has also taught me the importance of not stepping back from community when you get a rejection. The initial thing is that feeling of shame And, oh my God, I'm not good enough. I need to go back into my 
grotto and sit there and ponder these things a little bit more. When you do disclose this to a community, what happens is that it becomes just a thing out there in the world. It doesn't become this growth inside your head. And you can talk about it and it becomes much less dangerous than when you have it grow and that feeling. Having a community that cheers you on and where you cheer others on helps you also let go of some of the jealousy of others. I mean, seeing that and seeing others, I mean, when somebody else succeeds after a long time of just nothing, that is a pick-me-up for a week for me. And that doesn't even happen to me. And just to give you an idea, and I haven't been submitting to contests in Canada, but I check every single one, the long lists, to see if there's somebody I know that I should cheer on. And sort of cheering people on and, you know, sharing their experience of who they send their stuff to. I mean, the beehive knowledge of where to send your things and where they might fit in is, I think, of really great value as a writer, because you cannot know all these things yourself. So sharing the knowledge and sharing the successes and also the terrible blunders that we sometimes do and normalizing, yeah, this, you can really do something like that and still the day after be accepted by somebody great in a place where you didn't believe you'd be accepted. There's huge value in that. And I say that as somebody who would be an introvert in my writing, I would sit around it, you know, cover my ears and eyes and not let anybody see it. I'm genuinely happy for others when they have success. I don't feel that their success is make it more difficult for me to have success. It's almost a shared success. And having a group around you that you can share that, oh, I got a rejection and I feel really sad. And, oh, what should I do about this thing? It really helps me keep going. Similarly, Laurie Sebastianuti finds inspiration and not envy when she sees writers in our community succeed. You know, being a part of Writerly Love, my own writing group, even Twitter to a lesser extent. It's knowing that, like we said, putting yourself out there, people who understand that, people who understand rejection, people who understand the need to write, the need to get your stories out. I think those are absolutely crucial. I think, too, what has been amazing to see is like sometimes you start out with people around, you know, the same kind of, I don't want to say level, but kind of, you know, novice writers. And then you're seeing some people like go off and publish books even like, and you're seeing all the trials and tribulations in that, you know, and so you're like, oh, one day I hope to be there. And you think, okay, so I should expect this. I should expect that. And so I really do think it's crucial. Still, each of these writers have their own personal, often really introspective ways of handling rejection. For Lori, her preparation for possible rejection comes even before she hears back from the journals, right when she hits that submit button. I feel that a lot. I feel like I do, like we talked about with CNF, I feel like I do need inspiration or kind of like a little push. And I usually go for a walk. I might say a little prayer. And I just kind of think to myself, like, okay, what's the worst thing that can happen if A, this gets rejected? B, it gets published and people read it. Like, what's the worst thing that can happen? And what's the best thing that can happen? You know, a reader identifies with my story. So, yeah, I think it's a lot of thinking, a lot of reflection, prayer, and going for a walk. That really helps me just 
looking at the trees and just thinking about it. So what would I do? First of all, I don't try to downplay the feelings I have. The feeling of hurt and of being rejected and worthless. I let them simmer for a few minutes and then I tell myself to breathe and I tell myself it's okay to feel that. And I put both the peace and the rejection away and go for a walk. Because walking helps me with almost everything. I usually don't reopen the piece again, but sometimes it is useful because I realized, for instance, two rejections that was, wow, how did that happen last year? I realized I had sent the wrong version of the piece. I was supposed to send one and I sent another one that was pre-edited one. So that made me feel both like an idiot, but also these are things that happen. And this is part of explaining why I got that kind of rejection. So. I actually did that with four different, I mean, it was one piece and I sent it to four different ones. I withdrew from the other two when I realized that I'd sent the wrong version, like months later. I usually try to concentrate on something else that I've written and free write a bit and get the flow. There's one thing that these rejections do. All that self-doubt will very often put you in a position where you start Self-editing is doubting every word that comes out of your keyboard or pen. So getting the flow going again is one of the first things I need to reestablish after that hurt. My process is that I have a subfolder in my inbox. So it's a subfolder and it's called literary submissions. And anytime I get a rejection, I look at it and I immediately move it to that folder and I just forget about it or at least try to. My strategies for rejection have been one, I would say is not to take things personal. It's always hard, especially when you're writing CNF and you're writing about your own life, as I often do. It can feel like a rejection of your story or a rejection of your life. And so, yeah, it's trying to Remember that we are also professional writers. And so this is like a professional rejection. It's not a personal rejection. And it's also not necessarily a rejection of the quality of the work. There's some people who, there's some editors who just do not get certain things. Not all editors are good. That's another important thing to remember. Yeah, not all editors are good. Not all editors understand different ways of living in this world, just different ways of understanding and processing what happens in this world. Other than that, I would say too, is celebrating my wins, I think a lot. Even if it's something that's published online, I actually have a binder of all of my publications. So I'll copy and paste it into a Word doc and I'll print it out. And so I've got kind of a portfolio with all of my publications. And so kind of having this ritual around Every time that I publish something, make sure I put it in my CV. And so it's kind of like really getting into any sort of publication and really taking the time to celebrate and bask in any win is very helpful when it comes to dealing with rejection, especially if you're rejected by an editor or publication that you really respect and admire. That can be certainly difficult. I love what Angela does around really celebrating those wins Those publication yeses feel great, but you probably notice they're not as sticky in our minds as the no's we experience. So whatever you can do to make them more sticky, to hold on to those celebratory moments is wonderful. 
Of course, sometimes the rejection gets to be too much and it's time to take stock. Here's Angela Wright again. There has definitely been times where I've said, not now, I need a break. The hardest thing I think about being a writer is that it's very difficult to sustain a practice and also be able to live life. I lived in Toronto, which is where I kind of started my literary career. And it's a very expensive city. And yeah, it can be very difficult when you're trying to devote enough time to writing while also trying to pay your rent and pay your bills. If it was not for, you know, grants that I got through the Ontario Arts Council and the Canada Council for the Arts, I would not have been able to work as a writer full time. But what I found is that it can be very exhausting. You know, I mean, even if you're successful with grants, you have to apply every year. And yeah, and so there's definitely been moments where I said, I need something that's more sustainable. I need something that will allow me to, yeah, be able to take a break and not have to worry about whether or not I'm going to be able to pay my bills. I would say on average, it takes me at least 10 to 15 hours to put together like a solid grant application. But for some of them, it can take up to, yeah, 30, 40 hours, which is a lot of time. It works out if you're successful, but it's a lot of time to devote to something that's not a sure thing. So there you have four writers on how they handle rejection with lots of different approaches and ideas, but also one big underline under community. I want to give the final word for this episode to Hege about one of the big benefits of practicing submitting, of making mistakes, of putting yourself out there, of handling whatever comes when you do, as she describes her own personal development. I feel that you know, failing and showing that it is human and writerly human, if you're a writerly human being, it is okay. It is okay to do that. It's okay to, you know, screw up your cover letter. And you're not the only person in the world who's done that. I think there's been a tremendous growth in me as a person, as I slowly start to let up on that control and allow other people in. And that's fair what I'm writing. Writing and failing and sometimes succeeding. And yeah, everybody has their own path. And I'm sure there are others that end up in a different corner saying, I don't care about validation. So I'll self-publish or people are so Zen. They don't even care about being published. They go to open houses and read beautiful poetry, but they don't care about that publishing part. So I think the path needs to be found individually depending on where you want to go. But I want my writing to be out in the world. And I want the writing to be as good as possible and be in the place where it fits best. And for that, community has been really crucial in my understanding of how to do that. My Lit Mag Love course will help you get a big yes for your writing from a Lit Mag you love. Get ahead in your plans to publish in 2022 by joining the waitlist today. You will get special enrollment offers if you do. Learn more about the course and get on the waitlist at rachelthompson.co slash litmaglove. The Write, Publish, and Shine podcast is brought to you by me, Rachel Thompson. You can learn more about the work I do to help writers write, publish, and shine at rachelthompson.co. When you're there, sign up for my writerly love letters. They're sent every other week and filled with support for your writing practice. 
Our podcast production assistant is Tamara Jong, who patiently helped gather all the interviews for this episode. Thank you again, Tamara, for being such an incredible literary citizen and inspiring us with your support of writers in our community. If this episode encouraged you to join the Beehive community of writers, to persist with your dreams, to publish in lit mags, or even to take a much needed break, I would love to hear from you. You can tag me on social media. I'm at Rachel Thompson on Twitter and at Rachel Thompson author on Instagram and tell other luminous writers about the episode. You can do this by sending them to the podcast at rachelthompson.co slash podcast or searching for write, publish and shine wherever they get their podcast. Thank you for listening. I encourage you to find that growth and feel all the feelings as you write and publish what you're meant to write and publish. My guest spoke to us from Oslo, Norway, from the land of the Algonquin Anishinaabe Nation in what is colonially known as Ottawa, Canada, from the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples in so-called Toronto, Ontario, and the traditional territories of the Erie, Neutral, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee and Mississaugas in what is colonially known as Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Myself, I am a guest in the South Sinai, Egypt, on lands historically and presently occupied by the El Tirabin Bedouin.